As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to Rates and Barrels. It's Monday, December 19th. Derek Van Riper here with Eno Saris on this episode. We enjoy more player movement. Do you remember how much last December was a struggle to get through the early days of the lockout, knowing that it wasn't going to be a quick resolution, knowing that we weren't going to have big signings and trades and different things to kind of help us along through the final weeks of the year? It was awful. It was so Terrible. Good thing we had practice because of COVID. (laughs) We did. We did. That was the true awful year uh, for content creators. And obviously it was awful for a bunch of other reasons. But on this episode, we have some big pitcher signings. We have a couple big position player signings. And we even have a trade, a big trade that went down almost a week ago now. And I'm still not really sure how my favorite team got involved in it, but we'll dig into that. In just a little while, I figure we should start on the pitching side of the moves. And we begin today with Carlos Rodon. He goes to the Yankees. It is a six-year, $162 million contract. Good for him. All the injuries he's been through. Now, after two seasons, mostly healthy seasons. I say mostly and kind of emphasize that this past season, 2022, was the, the healthiest Carlos Rodon has ever been as a big league pitcher in terms of a workload, 178 innings was a career high. The skills, though, have been excellent going back to the start of 2021. I know he pops in the pitching model, so from that perspective, this makes all the sense in the world. But, you know, I was actually a little bit surprised that the Yankees did this, given that they already have Garrett Cole, given that they have Luis Severino there. It didn't seem like frontline starting pitching was necessarily a thing that they would go add. Obviously, this makes them better, and it puts them on the short list of teams that have really two aces in terms of stuff at the top of their rotation. Yeah, I think it's something they needed to do. I think they were hoping to have done it with uh, Frankie Montas, but I don't know that they felt uh, so sure of that after how last season went down. And really, you know, when you're the Yankees, you're trying to build for October more than almost anything at this point because they have built such a a strong team, um, you know, from the bottom up. 
So I think you you just really want him for October, and I think what it might take is some sort of pre, uh, sort of, what do you call it? Like loading, uh, what is it? Load management, you know? Because if you look at even last year, uh, Rodon, even though he had a great season um, in terms of, uh, you know, putting up so many innings, uh, you know, his stuff did fall off. Uh, he started the season sitting clear, comfortably clear of 96. In fact, you would round it to 97 for much of the first month. Uh, then it was more 95s and 96s uh, throughout the season. And he really ended September. Uh, let me see. Let me average it by month here, so I can actually say uh, ninety-four eight, uh, which doesn't sound that bad, but it is down from ninety-six-four in in uh, in April. So I don't know. That's uh, a tick and a half over the course of the year. If I was the Yankees, I think I would find a reason for him to uh, just take a couple of two-week blows through the season. Uh, because I want him throwing 96s and 97s in October. We think about it a lot more with young pitchers. How are teams going to manage innings around all-star breaks and, and days off? But I think you could imply uh, some similar techniques to someone like Rodon, especially, as you mentioned, with the Yankees having some aspirations of playing deep into October. And I think the question then comes down to how is their depth now compared to typical Yankees pitching depth one through five. This rotation is probably as good as any in the league right now with Colton Rodon at the top, Nestor Cortez. They probably get some kind of bounce back from Frankie Montas. At least that would be the hope. And then there's Luis Severino, who I seem to like more than everybody else. I look at Luis Severino and I'm looking more at the what could go right sort of side of it. I'm looking at it and saying this could be a year where he actually gets closer to a full workload again. I know there's risk in that, but relative to where he goes in early drafts, I'd really like what I'm seeing right now. Pick 112 in December, just looking at a handful of the draft champions leagues that have been done over the last couple of weeks. I will draft him in that spot all day long. Just by comparison, I think his injury history is similar in how scary it is to Carlos Rodon. Rodon goes quite a bit earlier. Rodon goes closer to pick 50 overall. It's not an A versus B sort of thing. You could get both. You're kind of looking at them as... Maybe Rodon is a late SP1 and Severino is more of an SP3. Uh, but I think if I'm taking on risk like this, I'm much more likely to take it on in that Severino range than in the fringe top 50 overall range. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think I might uh, prefer Severino. At his, are you saying you prefer for Severino at his draft cost versus Rodon at his? Yeah. Because of the injury history, it's not at all about concerns with stuff. I do think. One one area where I'd be cautious with Rodon, though, is moving into Yankee Stadium. The home run rate's mm -hmm. probably going up, especially leaving Oracle Park. But he's he's had some home run issues earlier in his career when the stuff wasn't as good as it's been over these last two years. But I would not be surprised if, similar to what we saw with Garrett Cole, where the home run rate ticks up and the ratios come up a little bit as a result of that. Yeah, it's just interesting that Severino's, uh, the shape of his stuff uh, over the, the course of the season is a little bit different than Rodon's, too. I mean, the... Uh, his three best stuff plus numbers, Severino's, came in his last five starts. His three best uh, control location plus numbers came in his last five starts. He really seemed to be uh, peaking uh, near the end of the season. I think that sort of speaks to your idea that uh, he, you know, had found something and was feeling better. So, 
Um, it's a really good rotation. You know, on top of that, uh, I, I still like Clark Schmidt. Uh, and Domingo Herman is a, is an excellent sort of swing guy, uh, if you need to take someone out early of a game. Um, so, you know, they're built, uh, to withstand some injury there. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they didn't make a big splash at short, uh, and that might be, uh, an interesting thing going forward because I think with the Isaiah kind of idea, they were like, well, we'd rather let's just focus on defense at short and have someone who has okay offense there. Um, that sort of sounds like Oswaldo Peraza. Um, but you know, Volpe, their number one prospect, uh, Anthony Volpe has just spent, uh, Nine ninety nine plate appearances at AAA, five hundred at AA. I don't know how much longer he's got to go. Uh, he, his strikeout rate did spike in AAA, so maybe they wanted to see him uh, go back to AAA, conquer that strikeout rate thing, and then he's ready to go. He's the best offensive upside of the Peraza kind of Falefa Volpe monster that's going to take over short. Um, but he is not what I hear the best defensive uh, of the three. So they're going to have that choice a little bit like what they have with Gleyber Torres, where they kept trying to use Gleyber Torres at short, but eventually he found a better place for himself at second. So I don't know if they're going to, you know, what order they're going to try them. I kind of think they're going to try all three shortstops. Yeah, fortunately for the Yankees, they don't exactly have third base lockdown with Josh Donaldson still sitting atop the depth chart. So you can put two of those guys on the left side of the infield if you feel like, from a, a bat perspective that you've got two that you trust that you like every single day as well. So they've got a little bit of, of flexibility. Um, I would still, if I had to bet on it for 2023 and even for the long-term future, I would still put more stock behind Volpe than the alternatives right now. I just think he's the most well-rounded player of the three. Um, I do think with Cabrera, his versatility has already been on display. They're willing to move him to a bunch of different spots. That bodes well for his playing time. And I think you've expressed some concerns with Peraza that he might not hit enough to stick as an everyday player. I think those are fair concerns to keep in mind, too, in the early parts of his career. But maybe we've reached that point where the Yankees can go out and now possibly make a trade if they want to get a more established player to help out on the left side of the infield, be that a temporary upgraded shortstop or maybe some kind of Donaldson replacement because trades are actually happening a few more signings on the pitching side, staying in the AL East. Chris Bassett goes to the Blue Jays, and I know Rogers Center is not the extreme hitters park that it had a reputation for being more than a decade ago, but it is a much more difficult environment to pitch in than where Bassett has pitched for most of his big league career, having spent a lot of that time in Oakland, and then of course time last season with the Mets in City Field. So for me, it's a park factors concern that would have me hesitant to go overboard getting a lot of Chris Bassett on my teams in 2023, but how does he grade out in terms of stuff and how much confidence should we have with him being on another quality team, albeit one in a more difficult place to pitch? One thing that is nice is that the divisional component is a little bit uh, lessened this, this season. In fact, you know, there's a set of 19 games versus the Yankees. Uh, he's going to have, I think, 13 
Um, and so that's six fewer games. Hopefully that means three fewer games in Yankee Stadium. <laughs> that's a tough place for pitchers. Um, and that also just means fewer games against the Yankees. So uh, some part of that is a little bit mitigated by the changes in the schedule coming up. But, you know, there's another part that is interesting to me, which is that he can command his hard stuff pretty well. And I know it doesn't, uh, you know, I want to say hard stuff. You're like, he does not have good velo, uh, but he has decent shape on those pitches too. Um, and all in all, uh, the, the sinker is an above average pitch once you factor in stuff and location. Um, so that makes him, you know, a little bit unique because a lot of these uh, older pitchers that are in free agency do not have above average fastballs. You know, why did Ross Stripling get so little after such a great season? It's because his fastball is pretty bad, pretty bad. Uh, so Bassett is on the better end of the, the fastball spectrum and the cutter also rates as an above average pitch. Um, and then the last thing is, I know he hasn't struck out on a bunch of guys yet, but his breaking balls rate as um, above average pitches and he doesn't use them that much. So I could see aging actually helping him a little bit where he starts throwing the breaking balls more and getting more whiffs and getting more strikeouts and keeping more balls out of play. And that's going to be something that's going to be important for him as a right-hander with the shift rules changing uh, and in some against some of the teams he's, he's playing. I think he'll really need to, to push that strikeout rate back into sort of 25% territory where he had it with Oakland in 2021. Yeah, I'm looking at Bassett versus Stripling just side by side. Look at their Fangraphs pages right now. And it's funny that Bassett is effectively replacing Stripling for the Blue Jays, just given how Stripling became important to that rotation. And Bassett gets an extra year. He gets more money. Stripling ends up with the Giants, which I think for a guy that has some questions about the quality of his stuff at this stage of his career, it softens the blow, right? It makes it possible to utilize him for those home starts. We we do this with just about every giant starter because they continue to go after guys that are in this group. And the downside can still be pretty rough because in the case of you know Alex Wood last season, I think we were waiting for a bounce back all year that never came. That can happen. But when you look at Stripling, did he land in one of the best possible spots to the point where we can maybe push another year or two out there that looks more like probably what we saw in 2018, 2019 in terms of ratios, as opposed to 2022. I mean, a 102 whip was easily a career best. I think if you're getting a sub four ERA, that's fine. You're expecting like a 350, 360 from Stripling in that ballpark, but you're probably getting something more like a 115 to 120 whip to go with it. And you're still doing that by avoiding a few of the more dangerous starts on his schedule. I mean, he really found something with the changeup last year. Uh, was his best pitch, uh, you know, by Stuff Plus, but also the best it's ever been for him. That really gives him an out pitch. He has, before that, he was kind of like a five-pitch guy with no real out pitch. Uh, his breaking balls are right around a league average. He commands them all right. But the changeup was really the, the big moment for him this year. His fastballs have 68 Stuff Plus, 66, 68. Bassett is at 88, 89. So I think that is part of the switch that they wanted to make in Toronto. For Stripling, though, yeah, he lands in a good situation. Um, I do, I do wonder. Uh, you know, you look back on his best strikeout rates; those came in the National League with a DH. 
So I wonder if we're going to cap him at sort of seven and a half strikeouts per nine. If we are, you know, with the shift rules, um, I don't know if that's going to come with like a low threes ERA. So I know the steamer projection here is for like a four, two ERA. Uh, I don't know. Changeups can reduce home run rates, can reduce BABIPs. Um, So I I think I'll give him something like a three, seven, five ERA with a one, two whip and seven and a half strikeouts per nine. Yeah, that low K rate, I think, is what drives down the draft day cost, and for good reason. The other thing I would consider with Ross Stripling, too, before you get real aggressive pushing him up based on the, the excellent ratios from a year ago, 134 and a third innings last year, that's his highest big league total ever. I know for a long time he was sort of an extra guy for the Dodgers, kind of that six-starter swing man, so he didn't really have a spot to call his own, but... There's a few things you worry about. One, just straight-up durability and then effectiveness as the season rolls along, too. If he takes the ball every fifth day and goes five innings per start, you know what happens in late August and September? Does the stuff hold up? And given the, the fastball concerns that you outlined, if he loses anything along the way, how effective can he be? Uh, the changeup was the big difference maker. Threw that pitch a lot more in 2022 than he did in the past. Let's get to Noah Syndergaard. He lands with the Dodgers, and I think there were a few points during this past season when I looked at the pitching plus model, and I thought, maybe there's something in the underlying numbers that's encouraging with Noah Syndergaard that will make me feel confident about using him. And every time I looked, I did not really find anything that made me feel better about using Noah Syndergaard. But he goes to the Dodgers. I think that alone makes him interesting, only because they've had a lot of success taking guys who seemingly have a lot less in terms of stuff, than Syndergaard and making them very effective. He has command. He has a lot of pitches. So what tweaks do you think the Dodgers could make? And what level do you think you can get Syndergaard back to? Because when I talked to Keith Law about this on the Athletic Baseball show last week, the big thing with Thor was the massive drop in velocity after surgery. Down four ticks on his fastball. Really kind of down four ticks across the board. Can he regain some of the velocity? And even if he doesn't, does he have good enough stuff in command to come up with a new game plan that can make him a more effective version of the pitcher we just saw with the Angels last season? Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think that track record and research suggests that we should be super hopeful about Noah Syndergaard bring, getting back below. Um, in fact, there are a couple of pieces I can think of that I often cite. Jeff Zimmerman has a, a piece of research that uh, fastball velocity coming off the IL takes three starts to become meaningful. <laughs> that basically, once you see three starts of fastball velocity of a pitcher coming off the IL, that predicts something like 90% of their fastball velocity the rest of the season. Now, of course, that's we're talking a little different. Season to season. So he could have a whole offseason where he's working on it. It's true, uh, and it's possible. But I've also seen research that suggests that uh, command is the last thing to come back. Specifically, fastball command is the last thing to come back after surgery. And guess what? No Syndergaard's fastball command is back. So what are we, like, why are we thinking that there's another level if the thing that's supposed to come back second has already come back? You know what I mean? Like, we're, the thing that's supposed to come back first hasn't come back, but the thing that's come back second is, is already back. That means maybe the thing that's coming back first is never coming back. So I, I, I think he's just uh, a new player now. He's really interesting because he is actually much closer to the Ross Stripling mold of pitchers than he is to even the Chris Bassett. 
Um, uh, although once you look at this sinker, so the four seam fastball for Syndergaard was second worst uh, among mostly thrown uh, four seamers, uh, like uh, ones thrown more than 200 times. He had a 54 stuff plus. But the changes that he was making in Philadelphia, I think, are the changes he'll make in LA because his sinker has an 88 stuff plus. He's going to turn more into a kind of sinker slider guy. Uh, and I think push uh, punch the curveball usage up because he was doing that a little bit late in the season, um, and maybe find uh, some strikeouts in the way that lots of old pitchers have found before, which is just dial up the breaking ball usage, uh, sneak the sinker in there, uh, and hope to get back to at least seven strikeouts per nine because the projections are they are not pretty. Yeah, they they're not. Um, I think I'm kind of in though, because you see enough ingredients to where it can work. And you think about sinker slider guys, we're just talking about Chris Bassett. You mentioned the similarities to Ross Stripling. Those guys do it without premium velocity. They do it with a deeper mix of pitches. I think knowing after kind of experiencing it for a year, I don't have the same stuff anymore. I think Cindergard can go into it with a better mentality this year. Okay, I'm not blowing it by people anymore. I have to come up with some different game plans. I think the Dodgers can help him along with that. Like you said, we've seen some of these adjustments already in Philadelphia, and that curveball especially is one of those pitches that it it's one that you wonder about. You're like, why why hasn't he thrown that pitch more? It, it looks like a really good pitch for him to, to lean it's on a lot more heavily. Best pitch by curve plus by, by stuff plus, and he commands it well. Um, maybe there was some issue, you know, sometimes when you come back from uh, TJ, they do tell you not to throw things as much. Uh, when we asked him about it, we did a story about his arsenal, and we asked specifically about the curveball, and uh, him and his pitching coach just sort of said, we're working on the slider. The slider, you know, only had a 103 stuff plus, you know, there are better sliders out there. So maybe they were just, they said, we're working on the slider and the curveball's next. Um, I don't know. I don't know if that, I don't know where that leaves me. I, I feel like there's a little bit of upside in the breaking balls. I think he could throw them a lot more than he does. Um, I would throw the slider, you know, 30% of the time and the curveball 15 to 20% of the time so that you're almost 50 50 on those. Um, and uh, if that happens, I do think he could get his strikeout rate up. It's the old pitcher trick. Uh, LA is going to, you know, have as many tricks as they can for him. And I think that in a draft where, um, I'm drafting him super late. Like, is he going after Stripling? I think he's so far going after Stripling. I think going to the Dodgers is going to nudge him ahead of Stripling, potentially. I would love to get both those guys as, like, my last pitcher, bench pitcher, last two pitchers. Because my reasoning is, um, I think that they would have a lot of matchups where I'd want to play them. And a fair amount of matches where I don't. And if you could almost uh, like tandem them where you, you're kind of playing them at different times and different weeks, uh, I think you could probably get 200 innings of, you know, mid threes ERA with, you know, seven strikeouts for nine. You'd kind of, okay. you'd kind of be using two guys to get there. But uh, I think that's what we have to do these days. Yeah, probably around pick 300 for Stripling in a lot of drafts, looking at the earliest that Cindergaard's gone. These are only draft champions leagues I'm looking at. So 300, that's, you're talking SP9, SP8, right? Like, you know, right? Late. Yeah, it's late for yeah. sure. 
I guess SP, maybe SP6, SP7. But yeah, that's six and seven and eight. What I want out of those guys is sometimes I want to play them. You know, <laughs> and and they're better than who's going to be on the wire, and I think that's probably true for both these guys. Yeah, I think so. Team context definitely would would nudge them ahead of that group of pitchers. A couple other names on the move: we got Michael Lorenzen going to the Tigers, Trevor Williams maybe getting a chance to start for the Nationals, and Trevor May to the A's. Do you see any of those three guys standing out as particularly interesting for you during the upcoming season? Uh, Lorenzen added a sweeper last year. And uh, that was interesting because before he was a guy who just had a lot of pitches that were okay. The sweeper is now a legit out pitch, 126 stuff plus. It's a, it's a, and he doesn't command it very well. It's a tough pitch to command, but it's still an above average pitch overall. Um, you know, he's going to have to tweak some stuff to, to figure out, but he can command his hard stuff fairly well. Uh, and he's got that sweeper. So, Maybe he's going to settle into four seamer sinker cutter slider. Um, you know, I don't think the changeup's that good, even though it throws it a lot. So with those four pitches, I think he has something he can battle lefties and righties with. He has uh, two pitches that have good action and uh, two pitches that, uh, or three pitches that he can command. So he's going to be, if he succeeds, he's going to be more of a kitchen sink guy. But he's, you know, he's got that sweeper now. And, uh, you know, isn't there going to be a lot of opportunity in, in, in Detroit? I know that they have a lot of starting pitchers in a way, but I think they're going to slot him in in the starting five to start the season at least. Uh, Scoobles coming off of injuries. Turnbull's coming off of injury. Uh, so you might give him the first chance, and uh, that's everything, you know? You know, you never know. If he gets the first chance and he's healthy – for long enough, then maybe Turnbull or Scooble, uh, you know, come back in for somebody else who's hurt. Yeah, they've got a few injured pitchers, as you mentioned. I think that's uh, part of why Lorenzen was appealing to them. It's immediate innings and then maybe some more innings later, depending on how all of those those players recover from their various ailments. And I look at Lorenzen, I just think if he could fix the control, he could end up kind of fitting into that stripling bucket. He could be one of those guys, especially in a more pitcher-friendly environment like Detroit. I think he could actually be somewhat useful, but that's the skill that needs to improve before I can trust him. That's a big part of why he's uh, even cheaper than some of these other names that we've mentioned and so I think far. You're he, talking about a fringe top 500 pick right now. Yeah, he's a little bit closer to somebody I would use in um, a DC as just a depth guy, a guy you know, that I pick as a you know, as a 12th or 13th starting pitcher, you know, like, you know, down there where I think he'll get innings. I don't know what kind of innings there'll be and I need, I need to buy innings. Um, but I, there's a little bit of that asterisk with that, uh, with that sweeper. Uh, Matthew Boyd also changed his, his changeup last season. Um, and a little bit under the hood, if he can uh, match that changeup with that slider, um, and avoid the home runs like he's really had a trouble with. Um, he is perhaps even more interesting than Lorenzen, um, and he's on the same team. So both of those guys, um, I would I would want his death. But if you're talking about like you know NFBC, you know not much more than a final pitcher that I want to see where he is in the first week, and I may consider dropping in the first couple of weeks if it doesn't look good right away. Both Boyd and Lorenzen for me right now are 
matchup dependent starters that you could draft at the end of the end of the reserves if you like the first couple matchups. Otherwise, you're just waiting for an opportunity on the waiver wire to pick them up, hopefully on a, on the cheap and you know use them while you like the way things are, are set up on the schedule. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Let's get over to some position players. Carlos Correa lands with the Giants. They get their big position player to go with some of the pitching that we talked about, I think, on last week's episode. By then, they had Hanniger, um, They had Sean Manaya. I think they didn't have Stripling yet. So the pieces are all coming together in San Francisco. I guess the only, the only real question people would have about Correa going to San Francisco is, will the park, and maybe the lineup too, will the park and lineup bring down his counting stats in a way that makes him less appealing to us, at least in the short term, because the 2023 Giants probably do not project anywhere close to the 2022 Astros in terms of the quality of the supporting cast he's going to have around him. You know, I think we saw some of that maybe last year with uh, the the Twins. You know, 60 RBI is, is not great. Uh, but Correa still managed to be a three, six, nine, top twelve shortstop. Uh, that's a starting shortstop in most leagues, and it's it's a weird shape because he doesn't have give you stolen bases, but it's Seager esque, if you ask me. Um, and I think this is a team that has improved its lineup, um, uh, and is always going to find a way to have people on base. Um, you know, with their mix and match mentality and getting the most out of it. I do think that last year was a bad year, but I don't think it invalidates the work they did the year before completely. Um, so I think his run scored will be pretty good. I think he'll play near the top of the lineup. Um, I think he could have 90 to 100 runs scored uh, and like 75 to 80 RBI um, next year in San Francisco. Seems like uh, you know he's projected for close to that. I'm you know pushing the run scored a little bit because I believe in you know how they do things and how they're how they put the pieces together there. Um, and then lastly, uh, you know that park uh, we have a we have a, a diagram here for people who are watching on YouTube, uh, but you can put it together on Savant where you just overlay. I did here the last two seasons of uh Carlos Correa's balls in play and then I just changed this the park underneath it so that it's uh San Francisco it does look like maybe it'll cost him a, t- a homer or two near Triples Alley um but that he might actually gain some homers uh, over to the right side where it's a little bit shorter in San Francisco uh you do have to take this all with a grain of salt because uh it's cold 
it's cold in San Francisco and balls don't fly as far. So the dots won't even be in the same places, if you know what I mean. It looks right now, if you just took all the dots, took all the hits and put them right over it, that he would almost gain from the situation. There's a lot of gray dots that are past the outfield wall uh, that were outs in the in the past. But I think what will end up actually happening is some of those balls don't go as far, uh, but that Carlos Correa ends up uh, pretty close to where he's been in the past. 280, I'm going to give him 280, uh, 25 homers, 90 RBI. 70, uh, uh, 75 RBI, 90 runs scored, 95 runs scored. Uh, that's good enough to be a top 10 shortstop next year. You know, it all depends a little bit on the on the volume, I guess. Yeah, it kind of splits the difference between his last season in Houston and his only season in Minnesota. I think I said 2022 Astros. I meant 2021 Astros because that was more of the counting stat ceiling we were looking at. And maybe Minnesota was a perfect place to sort of ease us into the new version of of Correa, I think uh, even Minnesota, the injuries they had last year probably underperformed offensively relative to our initial expectations. And when you look at Correa's slash line, it was 291, 366, 467. That slugging percentage was only down 18 points from where it was in 2021. We know there was a lot going on with the ball between those two seasons also, so not as much of a drop-off as some people might have feared for him leaving Houston. Uh, I think your projection seems like it's kind of on point and I don't think anyone ever looked at Carlos Correa in these last couple of seasons, given the health concerns as well, and said 30-plus homers is a lock. You're drafting him for a low 20s, mid-20s sort of total, and you're getting a good balance, does everything but run. I think that Corey Seager comp is actually a really good one in terms of the roto profile that Correa brings to the table at this point. But a nice get for the Giants. Uh, we did see Dansby Swanson find a new home as well. The Cubs get involved in the shortstop market. I know we have talked about Dansby Swanson's arm and the future limitations defensively. Maybe by the end of this contract, he's playing somewhere else. But the bottom line is this is a nice upgrade for the Cubs. It's kind of a similar way to think about Swanson, though, to what we just said with Correa. Does the move away from an elite lineup in this case, which we didn't get a year of Swanson going somewhere else, how much does that hurt him? Because this is a Cubs team that I think could struggle to score runs, even though they've made uh, a few moves trying to get better in 2023. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a bit of a high-variance offense, isn't it? I mean, you've got Bellinger uh, out there in center. Um, you've got, uh, you know, Ian Happ has been a little bit up and down. You're You're hoping for... Say Suzuki to kind of uh, take that acclimation that he showed to the next level. Um, you've got Christian Morrell and Patrick Wisdom as, you know, volatile because of their strikeout rates. Um, and then, you know, in Nick Madrigal and Zach McKinstry, you have two backups that can play in different places that have really interesting skill sets, but really could go either way. <laughs> you know, like I don't like I, I you know I think there's a lot of guys who could go either way here I love Nico Horner I think he's going to step forward and, and and hit for more power I think say Suzuka Suzuki is going to uh, have a better season this coming this coming year um, I like that there's a lot of mix and match to this lineup you can play Morel in a lot of places Madrigal McKinstry if they put Master Boney on this team you know he plays in a lot of different places so you know, they won't have like an everyday DH, but they'll have uh, a lot of different lineups over the course of the season. I like, you know, putting Tyon and Stroman on that team. 
Um, and so I think they're generally building towards something interesting, but I don't really see a, a, a star starting pitching like on the level of an ace. Uh, the bullpen still needs a fair amount of work, and they're and this offense is even high variance where you don't know. It could go either way if Bellinger doesn't take that step forward. Suzuki is only kind of a walks guy, and Hap starts striking out again, and Horner doesn't you know, take that next step forward. Uh, then Swanson's going to be a little bit of a high price bobble you know, for this team where it's, he'll be, uh, he'll fit right in, in terms of not being an amazing offensive piece or defensive piece, but, uh, you know, having some variance in either direction, this could be a team that would surprise next year. I, I think that the Cardinals are a little bit, um, gettable in that. I think they feasted off on the Pirates and and some and the Cubs last season, and they're going to have less of that feasting uh, next season. I you know I like that they got Wilson Contreras, but in terms of pitching, they didn't really get better. Um, so I think that I could see the Cardinals dropping back and the Cubs or um, Brewers uh, taking that division. With the Cubs, it would be a bit more of a surprise, but they're a surprise that happen every year, right? Couldn't you just sort of squint at this team and be like? Oh, if certain, if like a bunch of these things happen at the same time, then this could be a good team. Yeah. I mean, the things that I sort of believe in with this team, I mean, Swanson's an upgrade. I think Nico Horner took a quiet, nice step forward that we've talked about a little bit on this show. So they're solid up the middle. Ian Happ's new way of kind of getting to the same result is a better, more sustainable way to be that kind of offensive player. It's less swing and miss. He's always been patient, but I just, I like the way he's kind of made adjustments. You need a few things to go right. You need Suzuki to be a lot better, which is possible. You need Matt Mervis to come up and hit right away. You need to not have third base turn into a black hole, um, which it could. I, I was wrong about Patrick Wisdom last year. We'll see if I'm still wrong about Patrick Wisdom. Because <laughs> I'm not going to change my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not moving. And Cody Bellinger, I mean, I kind of, well, he's, now that he's a cub, I want to see it less than than I did previously, but I think it'd be fun if he got back to being the player he was because this time last year, I thought there was a rebound coming. So I could talk myself into the offense exceeding expectations. The way they're projected right now, the run scored per game on fan graphs has the Cubs three, four, eighth from the bottom. So 4.23 runs scored per game by comparison. Atlanta, the lineup that Dansby Swanson just left, number one, 4.66 runs scored per game. That's a pretty big swing, right? So if you if you start looking at Swanson and you chip away a few homers and then you start chipping away some runs and RBIs, he looks like a player that might not be on a lot of my teams this year. And it's more because of supporting cast. Like if he had returned to Atlanta, if there just been some way that he went back to the Braves, I might have been in this year at cost. But I think there's still there are enough question marks about this group that I would err on the side of going well under the marks from a season ago. The other thing that works against Dansby Swanson for me, just from a projections perspective, he plays all the time. That's great. He's already maxed out the playing time, so mm-hmm. he can't he can't push that up to another level. He's already done that. He's played a hundred. In 62 games and 160 games the last two seasons. 
Yeah, it makes me think of Glenn Colton and Rick Wolf's, you know, rule about not drafting, uh, you know, big new contracts, which is <laughs> they're gonna have a tough. They, you know, there's a lot of. I wonder what their shortstop uh, plan is for next season with the big, big four signing like they have. But um, you know, the reason I think that that thing works where they don't try not to sign uh, guys who just signed big contracts is not necessarily that I think that there's something about signing a big contract that makes you immediately worse. But just that those big contracts are often signed off of career years. What we see for Dansby Swanson, it was in every way a career year. In terms of WRC+, Plus, his best season overall. In terms of stolen bases, he almost doubled his previous high, you know. Uh, just in terms of e- even like luck stats, quote unquote, like batting average on balls in place, second best, uh, you know, full season of his career. So, uh, here's a guy who doesn't make great contact, uh, doesn't get on base at a really fabulous rate, um, and uh, you know he has good barrel rates. So I, I do like that about him. But they're not elite barrel rates. So I kind of see the projections as being right in a lot of ways. Two forty-seven average, two fifty average with twenty-two to twenty-five homers. That part I like. Uh, the projections have him for 13 stolen bases, and I'm going to take the under on that. Um, the only qualification is we don't know what the next stolen base environment is going to look like. So maybe that helps him kind of stay afloat. I actually think maybe the, one of the best offensive comps for Dansby Swanson right now is now a division mate, someone he will see as a rival. I think it's Willie Adames. I think when mm. I see Dansby Swanson going around pick 70, and then I see Willie Adames going around pick 95. I just think, well, wait a turn or two and get Willie Adames because I think they have a lot of the same flaws, a lot of the same strengths. I think they're both going to play a ton. I think I actually like the way the Brewers' offense is built a little better than the Cubs right now. So I think the supporting stats are slightly better. I think Adames has better power. Yeah, the the fact that Dansby Swanson has a few double digit steal seasons that gives you more confidence in that category, but it's not worth a 25 pick difference for me to have a few extra steals when the offensive profiles are so similar. Yeah. I think I agree with you on that one. I also wonder if Dansby Swanson's ADP falls a little bit though, because of all the things we're talking about. And if that happens, if it ends up being a simple, would you rather at the same price, then I at least think Swanson is much more, uh, of a like a reasonably priced player, I think he's still overpriced take steals, right now. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, so that's where I'm at with Dansby Swanson. Good get for the Cubs, but a little bit complicated because of where people have been drafting him in the early part of this draft season. Speaking of the Brewers, let's talk about the Sean Murphy trade. We'll talk about the Brewers aspect of this in just a moment, but Sean Murphy gets traded. No longer in Oakland A. He is now a member of the Atlanta Braves. He gets all of the boosts, all the things that we're just taking away from Dansby Swanson. Let's give them all to Sean Murphy. Let's give him the better supporting cast. Let's give him the better home park. We know there's a lot of things Sean Murphy already does well. Playing time might come down a little bit because now he's got Travis Darno to share some playing time with. But they also could work those guys in as DH options because they haven't locked up the depth chart so much that they can't do it. So I don't know if I'm going to go with a, a significant downgrade in plate appearances on Murphy, but it's at least something to be mindful of depending on other moves that Atlanta makes between now and opening day. So let's start with Murphy first. Value up a little, a lot with the move out of Oakland. Just the park factors alone, I think, really change his power ceiling. 
Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, if you got the same playing time last year, he could have had, instead of, you know, 17, 18 homers, he could have had 25. I mean, he he really barrels the ball. He's really good that way. Um, you're right that they've got Travis Darnot there. Um, right now, it's Travis Darnot and Marcelo Zuna and Sean Murphy, almost in a three-three three-way, you know, split there at DH. I don't know. There's something that tells me that, like, either Ozuna, you know, takes all of those or he takes none of those. It's like maybe it's a 33% likelihood, <laughs> but it's not going to end up that way. It's going to either end up uh, he's their their DH or they, frankly, you know, release him. I mean, where do you, where do you stand on Ozuna? I mean, it seems kind of important to Murphy's value. He's not been an above-average hitter since 2020. That year, he had a 178 WRC+, plus, but... Uh, that seems uh, very, very far in the rearview mirror. Still two years left on his contract, but it just seems like Atlanta is reaching that point where they're looking more at having the room to do what they want with DH. That's that's how it feels from the outside. But maybe because there are two years left on the deal, they wait, see what happens in spring training, see what happens in April. By mid-May, maybe that's a decision they decide to make as far as like a DFA release sort of situation if he's not hitting. Last year, he hit 230, uh, 270 OBP, 413 slugging for 11% worse than league average. If he does that again, I think they release him because he's not going to give you defensive value. There are some, you know, some other uh, situations, you know, in terms of his makeup, perhaps. And so, you know, if he's not going to give you the bat, then he, if he hits for his projections, which is a 248 average with a 435 slugging, that's supposed to be 7% better than league average. That'll be just good enough for him to keep his job, I think. Because they'll have another year on him. He'll be an above-average hitter, and they'll just be like, hey, he's our DH. Yeah, I guess just making a call in terms of how it impacts them playing time-wise, I still think it's more likely he stays on the roster all season and plays a lot than he doesn't based on barrel rates and some of the underlying numbers from last season. Just my best guess at this point, but yeah, he still a- barreled it. It was the second best barrel rate season for his career. It's true. It's it's weird that it didn't turn on to as much power, but uh, we also had the dead and ball, so I guess that's part of it. The max EVs are still pretty good. He hit a ball 114 last year. So Sean Murphy, I had him, I think, previously sitting inside the top 10 among catchers. Does this push him closer to the top five or into the top five? I mean, Real Muto, Will Smith, hard to get near those two guys. I think Adley yeah. Rutschman's in that top five for a lot of people. Uh, Dalton Varsho, Wilson Contreras, those guys are all up there. Sal Perez. I mean, maybe maybe you can argue now that Murphy versus Salvador Perez can become a toss-up. It was not a draft day toss-up prior to this move. That's a pretty big jump in terms of where Murphy was going if it ends up being I'll that have much of a move. Behind Sal, just because... Yes, I would move up his park factors uh, for his, uh, his situation there. But given our conversation about the other options they have at DH and the fact that Travis Darnot is the backup, who's a pretty competent catcher, I, I don't think he's going to get to 612 plate appearances like he did last year. So if you move back uh, to more like 500, 550 plate appearances, you can still have a 25 homer pace and still end up with something that looks a lot like last year, which is sort of a 250 average and 19 to 20 homers. You know, And I don't think that's a top five catcher. The reason that this is so great uh, of a trade for the Braves um, is because Murphy's a great framer, great defensive catcher, 
and uh, I think sort of a top three real life catcher. But I don't think that necessarily extends to the fantasy side. No. Good fantasy catcher, but I would agree because the defensive value is so high, even better in situations that account for that. I guess score sheet is another place where you mm. can look at Sean Murphy and value him more like the way major league teams do. Because Atlanta had catchers already with Travis Darno and William Contreras, the Brewers swoop in and get Contreras out of this, which is just like, how? How did they even know this was going down? Did, yeah. did someone tip them off to this, these two teams making a deal and the light bulb went off in the Milwaukee front office and they were like, wait a minute, we need a catcher. And these teams have more catchers than they can possibly use. So they're not trading catchers with each other. They must have just been talking to the Braves about Contreras. Like maybe they had been talking, maybe the Braves reached out and were like, give us one of your starting pitchers for Contreras. And they said, no. They said, no, but then they knew that uh, that uh, the Brewers were somewhat interested in Wilson Contreras, you know? So, okay, so the Brewers then said, we'll give you a Sturry Ruiz, and Atlanta said, no, nah, we, we don't, he's not, that's not our kind of player. But we know Oakland Right, right, yeah. So, yeah, we'll give you a Sturry Ruiz for Wilson Contreras, and then, uh, you know, no thanks. But we know somebody who does want a Sturry Ruiz. Fair enough. So the Brewers get involved. They get William Contreras in all this. Asturi Ruiz is a part of the package that Oakland gets back. We'll, we'll get to Contreras first because we're talking about catchers. He's now in a better situation for playing time. Victor Caratini is a clear backup sort of catcher. So instead of being in that split that he was in in Atlanta, now William Contreras gets a chance to be a 450, 500 plate appearance starting catcher. The flaw, I think, in his game is the swing and miss. It depends on whether or not you believe he's going to cut that down. Like, do you see William Contreras being good enough in his swing decisions to get the K rate lower than it's been to this early point in his big league career? We're talking about a guy that's got 571 plate appearances at the big league level, a 28.4% career K rate, but 28 homers. So big time power. This is an above average offensive player for sure. And on top of all that, the defensive shortcomings that William Contreras might have I think you can worry less about them in Milwaukee where Omar Narvaez became a much better defensive catcher during his time there. When the Brewers acquired Omar Narvaez two, three, three winners ago, I think it was, he was one of the worst defensive catchers in baseball by many of the public-facing metrics. And by the time he left, he'd almost flipped his position on the leaderboard. So, And he's young, too. We talk about William Contreras. He's going to be 25 years old this weekend. So there's still reason to believe that aspect of his game can get better. What is the 2023 offensive ceiling for Contreras? Is he actually a better fantasy player than Sean Murphy, given their new situations and how the playing time might play out? Yeah, the projections are, you know, pretty much neck and neck between the two. Both have like sort of a 250 average and 20 homers next year. Uh, so it could be a, a take your pick situation, but maybe you get a lot more plate appearances out of Contreras. Um, in terms of upside, you know, he, his barrel rate was better than Sean Murphy's, uh, and he hit a ball 115. So he has really good quality of contact, and you really, you know, hit the nail on the head when you're talking about you know about the swing decisions. He it was only uh, 10 games or 10 plate appearances in 2020, but he he swung at almost half the pitches he saw outside the zone. No bueno. Uh, 2021 down to 31% according to pitch info. 
And then last year, uh, 28%, which I think on Pitch Info's line is still below average. Um, I do think he still had below average uh, plate discipline last year when it, when judged by uh, his re- his chase rate. However, you know, uh, given his strikeout rates in the minor leagues um, and given his improvement, uh, I could see a little bit of improvement there. I can definitely see it on the framing aspect because the Brewers have long had like a little bit of magic. It goes all the way back to Lucroy. I was talking to Jonathan Lucroy about how he became one of the best framers in the league. And he said the Brewers have an entire catching development situation where uh, they do things that, uh, you know, I, I even checked back with him when he'd been to other organizations and they do things that other organizations don't do in terms of developing catching framing. Um, so, you know, I do think he could take a step forward there. Uh, and take a step forward with the contact and the swing decisions um, and maybe make good on that 275 average that last year was a little bit lucky, but get back to it by improving his peripherals. So I see an upside here of a guy who could hit 275 with like 27 homers. Uh, that might outpace Sean Murphy's upside given the plate, dis- the plate, uh, given the plate appearance differences we'll see. Yeah, if you look at, at William Contreras side by side with Gary Sanchez for Statcast numbers from last season, barrel rates both over thirteen percent. Sanchez had a hard, slightly better hard hit rate, forty nine percent for him and forty six percent. But Sanchez for William K Contreras rate was what, yeah. What do you think the K rates were? Thirty five percent, twenty eight point nine for Gary no Sanchez. No way. Yeah, he walked a little less than William Contreras, but I think I mean that's a. If, he's if still you're looking out at there. him as a similar, is he still a free agent. Yeah, yeah, he's still out there. In a world with universal DH, I, I think Gary Sanchez is a lot more interesting. Do you think that the Giants will sign him? Yeah, I do. Yeah, <laughs> I kind of think that now that I've said that. <laughs> They've been yes. looking to improve their catching situation. They're still under the cap. Uh, that's an interesting one. But I, 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 you know, I do think that uh, Contreras, Wilson, Williams, Willens. William. William. William Contreras has um, a little bit more upside than Sanchez. I mean, uh, he was putting up like 20% K rates in the minor leagues. If he can get down to 23, 22% Contreras, uh, now we're talking about plus batting average and plus power. Right. I guess I'm, I think about it more for like just the, the good parts of Gary Sanchez's offensive profile. Those are, mm-hmm. are traits that William Contreras has flashed in his brief time in the big leagues. So that makes this a pretty exciting trade. What one thing that also makes it really exciting though is the what they gave up. Because Estoria Ruiz is somebody that, you know, has created a lot of um, different opinions, I guess, in the industry. But you can already see that by the fact he's been traded twice before he turned 24. So that means that you know there were teams on both sides of him already so <laughs> multiple teams have had multiple different reads on this guy uh so far and um i just i, I think I, i'm on the he was overrated and uh they did really well the Brewers did really well to trade him for for Contreras because i think quality of contact matters and so you can see over at rotor wire uh that Estoril ruiz had a hard hit rate of 20 percent now you can take his strikeout rate, which is around 18%. This is even in his best season in the minor leagues. Like he never had a season like he did last season before. 
In fact, he was walking at sort of six and seven percent rates uh, before uh, last season when he just doubled that. And, and for some reason, it was partially due to hit by pitches. So uh, leaving that aside, uh, <clears throat> here's a guy with questionable uh, plate discipline and questionable contact or just sort of average contact rates. He's not Stephen Kwan. If he was Stephen Kwan, then I wouldn't care as much about the quality of contact because he'd be making contact in the lead rate. He does not. So you can take his 18% strikeout rate in the minor leagues. You can take his 20% hard hit rate in the minor leagues. Uh, and you can go shopping uh, among the major leaguers and see who's like that. Well, I'll tell you who's like that. Jonathan Scope was like that. Uh, Cesar Hernandez was like that. My number one comp, and this is uh, this is great because it's uh, this is a guy who's in rates and barrels lore. Well, my number one comp for Esther Ruiz is Abraham Toro with elite hey. speed, and. Uh, you know, I had a long conversation with somebody on Twitter about whether or not quality contact matters when you got a guy who's this, this fast. And I think, A, for me, quality contact always matters. You have to hit the ball hard in today's league. Uh, and B, uh, let's say he had Stephen Kwan contact or you could totally believe in like a 15% uh, walk rate, then maybe you could look the other way on some of this. But Abraham Toro is someone we said always had great plate discipline, made decent contact, had above average power in the minor leagues. What we didn't know was he was getting away with it with poor quality of contact. Once he got to the big leagues, we saw this guy can't hit it hard. And I think if if this guy can't hit it hard, why do they walk you? You know, yes, with with the speed, there's that asterisk. And especially with the way that the the game just changed all these rules. It's, It's a chance that Ruiz just gets on and makes things hectic for pitchers, but he has to get on. And with a 20% strikeout rate, that puts a lot of pressure on that walk rate. And there are a couple, you know, scouting pieces out there. Uh, like, um, he's not Ralph Lifshitz anymore. Jeff Pontus uh, was saying uh, that his plate, dis- he has a write-up on, on Baseball America. He was saying that his, his plate was not was not good. Like his, his decisions at the plate were not good. So without uh, better data on his plate discipline in terms of you know reach rate and stuff like that, um, I'm going to be out. As someone who's had to try and console myself that Esther Ruiz would in fact be a good big leaguer, uh, just had, I had to do it at one point. <laughs> Otherwise, why did we trade Josh Hader? <laughs> right, like is this this real? I mean, I also had to talk myself into Robert Gosser being someone the Brewers really liked, and I think that's true. And uh-huh. you know, we'll we'll see how this all plays out. I thought this was a steal for the Brewers, like everybody else did. I was waiting for something else to be included: lower level pitchers, uh, another outfielder, uh, Joey Weimer, like s- something. I thought uh, something else was going to be leaving. Side. I thought they had to throw in more. I'm glad they didn't. I think you could see some similarities to a couple other outfielders from the last like, 10 years or so. I think Ender Inciarte didn't hit the ball hard, ran well uh, because of his speed. I think especially was a good defender, better defender in left than in center. Uh, I know there are people that think Ruiz can play center every day. So if the A's are going to throw him out there and kind of move on from Christian Pache, then you know more power to them. I think... From an offensive profile perspective, that means the ceiling in his very best years. Ender Inciarte hit 11 home runs in 2017 and 10 homers in 2018. 
And he was a fast peak player, right? He was good for a few years, like a two to three war sort of player, get a 4.7 war of his best season in 2016. And he was not good and he was injured from like 2019 onward. Like by his late 20s, he was on his way out. I think that's sort of like the best case scenario you could hope for, for Ruiz. And I think part of the reason why I think that comp works really well is that Ender Inciarte also wasn't an extremely patient guy that could walk a lot. Like we've seen flashes of that from Ruiz where he'd walk a lot in the upper levels of the minor leagues, but the swing decisions mean more when you get to the big leagues. If teams challenge you because they're not afraid of you, you're not going to walk like you did at AAA. So I think that's where the, the comp there holds up. I think another possible comp is Delano DeShields Jr. And Delano DeShields Jr. was more patient everywhere he played in the minor leagues. So I think that's where it breaks down just a little bit. But you think about the type of player that DeShields was once he got to the big leagues, it was a ton of value on speed, not much on homers. And because he wasn't getting on base much, he was stuck in the bottom of the batting order. So, you know, maybe you get away with it on a bad rebuilding team where you end up hitting high in the order and you score more runs just because the team around you doesn't have anyone better to play in that spot instead. It's a tough way to, to get by. So I, I think it can work reasonably well. I like that the Shields comp a little bit better. It's almost somewhere in between the Shields and Ciarte because Ciarte had like a 12% strikeout rate and uh and the Shields had a 23% strikeout rate, you know, and and you know, Ruiz is going to end up somewhere in between those two. But I do like the comps because between the two of those guys, there was one league average season with the bat. So, you know, if it seems like a little bit of a, a tough return for a top three catcher with three years of, of team control left. Um, in terms of fantasy, though, you know, the, both of those guys, I mean, how many how many fantasy relevant seasons did those guys turn out? We're talking probably about nine or ten. Yeah, I mean, if you're talking about deep leagues, especially. Sure. Yeah. Because even a part time guy that gets to 20 bags is is firmly in the mix for a mono league. So I, I do think there's. There's some short-term, even mixed-league appeal with Asturio Ruiz. But he has flaws, and players with those flaws do not tend to age particularly well. They don't tend to hold everyday roles for very long. But for the next two to three seasons, I wouldn't worry about it. I'd look at him as a viable, cheap source of speed so long as people don't go over the moon pushing him up way too high because they think he's going to steal 50-plus bases. If that happens, I'm very much out as a as a bargain source of flawed steals, flawed hey flawed steals are still steals. Yeah, because and it's like he could steal fifty bases, but he also you know, we just had Pache where you know I I had shares of him uh, in Oakland, you know because I just thought he's just going to play. That's a that can be a, a tough place to end up. Christian Pache did not just play. He got 260 plate appearances in an up and down season. He did not just play. They did not just give him center field and say, run with it. So as much as it looks like Ruiz is going to be in that situation, if he doesn't play well in spring and he doesn't play well in April, it doesn't mean he's just going to get all season. So, you know, there is a risk with given his poor batted ball quality. I mean, you can do something as simple as just looking at the major league leaders last year on Fangraphs, go to StatCast, go to hard hit rate, and then sort by the other way on hard hit rate. Tony Kemp, Adam Frazier, Miguel Rojas, J.P. Crawford, Cesar Hernandez, I- IKF. You know, and a lot of those guys have 
make a lot more contact than Ruiz is going to make. Jose Altuve is low in hard hit percentage. What's up with that? 29.5%. He's so strange because he still has, he has the highest barrel rate of anybody on the bottom of this list, right? You see that? Mm-hmm. Still has a, almost like an 8% barrel rate. I think he just is a really opportunistic hitter. He hits things softly sometimes, a lot of times, but when he does get something in his wheelhouse, he makes sure to hit it for a homer. He hit 28 homers last year. So he's, I think, optimized for his home park. A little bit like Bregman, where he's like, I'm going to hit this into the Crawford boxes. What if what if Adam Frazier had Estuary Ruiz's speed? What would that have done for us? That's what I'm saying. That's like I, it is interesting to think of, you know, Abraham Toro with with Ruiz's speed. You know, like what is that going to look like? Right. Because the A's have nothing to lose. They can give anybody who runs like that unlimited green lights. The green light is always Jorge on. Mateo? Is that what it looks like? I think Jorge Mateo has that kind of speed. And yeah. He, and he and, has a 32% hard hit rate. He strikes out a little bit more. So Jorge Mateo with a little more contact. Now we're talking, dude. Jorge Mateo with a little bit of contact is going to be a fantasy asset. Because you're talking about 230, 240 with... 13 homers and 50 stolen bases next year? I think I should become a used car salesperson. <laughs> but not not at a reputable lot. Not certified pre-owned. Cars that were fished out of lakes. <laughs> yeah, you just you just heard me trying to sell you on Jorge Mateo. There's gotta be that's gotta be a first on this, this program right here. Come Jorge a long Mateo, way. our long our whipping boy. Uh, the rest of this return, Kyle Muller, Freddie Tarnak, Roybert Salinas, and then veteran catcher Manny Pena, who will help shepherd along the yeah, younger catchers like Shea Langoliers. Shea Langoliers is a winner in this trade because now he's going to catch right away. and play I like him too. I, I think I like him as a person, as like, a, as like I think he's going to be a good catcher defensively and all that, and has a really good arm and stuff. But um, I, I don't know. About the other part, I mean the the, the barrel rate, the max EV are okay. Chase rate is only okay. You know his record of making contact is not great. So I think he's gonna maybe be one of these like typical catchers that hits two twenty with like eighteen homers. I don't. I'm not sure that he has a standout offensive profile. But I think compared to a lot of other catchers that hit two twenty with that power, he'll play more. So that will maybe open up the door for him to be more valuable from a fantasy perspective. As far as the pitchers go, Muller really had nothing left to prove at AAA. The walk rate did get better this year. Tarnak, I think, is, I don't know, higher ceiling, but also lower floor. I think if you're looking at those guys in terms of their bids to stay in the rotation long-term, and then Salinas further away throws really hard, but has some relief questions as well. So what do you make of the pitchers that are coming back to Oakland in this trade? If the Ruiz part had been better, I wouldn't have complained about the rest of the deal. You know what I mean? It's a bunch of arms that are interesting for their own, you know, in their own different ways. All have, you know, I think probably front of rotation upside. Um, all, I think, maybe not likely to reach that upside for different flaws or whatever. Uh, Muller's flaw is his fastball not only has poor shape, but it also really poorly commanded. Um, so he's going to have to do something about that because his best pitch is a changeup by stuff. 
uh, and his best pitch for locating is the curveball. Um, it's a mess. It's a mess. I, I wonder if there's a sinker in there since he's the changeup guy. He threw the changeup the least out of all of his pitches, and it was his best pitch. Uh, it's a mess. I don't. I don't know what is going on there, but. Uh, you know, a four-pitch guy that uh, has gotten close to the big leagues, that's apparently what pitching coaches want the most because they think, hey, I can make a couple tweaks here. This guy's almost a big leaguer. If I make a couple tweaks, he can be a big leaguer. Uh, Tarnock is a, is a, it's a possibility my, uh, my stats won't catch him right because his best pitch is a changeup. Um, and Stuff Plus hates Tarnock. But we also have 10 pitches, I believe, in the system. <laughs> yeah, probably not enough to draw a conclusion. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to say don't use Stuff Plus to make a decision about Freddie Tarnock. Um, I think think more about what he's doing in the spring, how uh, much they're, stre- they're stretching him out, where he looks destined to play next year. Uh, all those things are more important right now than Stuff Plus for Freddie Tarnock. As a group of pitchers, I see enough interesting stuff there where you know i'll take those guys but the ruiz is the the headpiece was a little bit a little bit rough for me looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events we've got the spot our partner StubHub has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years providing a 100 guarantee with every order from a worldwide selection of live events the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. If you're as obsessed with basketball as I am, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Hey guys, this is JJ Redick. Twice a week, I'm cooking up something special for basketball junkies on my podcast, The Old Man and the Three. I bring on guests in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, like Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash. Or Paulo Bencaro on his shooting workouts with Kevin Durant. Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron when they were teammates in Miami. But it's not just about the player interviews. Every Monday, I break down the top three things happening around the NBA without the outlandish takes. Often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler, we dive deep into topics like rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? The Old Man of the Three is the only companion podcast you'll need during the playoffs this year. Be sure to listen to The Old Man of the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll get into Oakland's rotation more at some point on an upcoming episode because there's a few more moves that we need to get to before we sign off. And I think we're skipping next week, so this will be a long episode anyway, which is fine since it, it could basically fill the space of two a few more position players on the move. Andrew Benintendi goes to the White Sox. They had been pretty quiet to this point in the offseason. It was just Mike Clevenger prior to the Benintendi move. Seems like a really good fit for them. Just a guy that makes contact, draws blocks, has some speed, sometimes has power, just doesn't show it consistently. Uh, makes him a lot deeper because I think they were leaning a little too heavily on some late 20s guys that maybe aren't necessarily everyday players prior to this move. And of course, losing Jose Abreu, moving Andrew Vaughn out of that outfield mix, they had a clear need. So I actually like this in terms of overall fit for Benintendi. Yeah, it is interesting because Jose Abreu is actually projected to be better than Benintendi next season. Uh, And he cost less. Uh, And he had a long time 
relationship with the city, right? It's like, what are you doing? I think Benintendi has the upside to fit this team better because with Andrew Vaughn, they already had a guy that could play at first or play at DH and was not great defensively in the outfield. So I think Benintendi in the corner outfield is going to be a decent defender. Uh, This is a team that didn't walk uh, last year, last in walk rate and chased too much, second worst chase rate. And Benintendi is going to help him improve in both ways. So he fits... His skill set fits in ways that they need him to. I don't like the contract, though, because he's only projected to be a, a slightly above average player next year. 2.3 wins by Steamer. Um, and I normally wouldn't put the, the decimal in there, uh, but it is sort of important because when you age players, when they hit around 30, you normally take a half win off. So let's, you know, next year is his uh, age 29 season. Uh, you take a, let's not take a full half win off. Let's just take 0.3 off. So then he's, he's going to be predicted to be a league average player in year two. That means in year three, he's not going to be a league average player. And you're still going to be paying him like he's league average player. I I would say. Yeah. I could see where a five-year deal ends up looking pretty bad for him in the long run. I think my best defense of it is that, we saw back in 2018, we saw a guy that was nearly a five-war player. And I think when you show One that of kind of ceiling... seasons where he was above average in his career. Yeah. Well, 2020, was he played 14 games. Garbage. Yeah, okay. get, get it out of here. Like that, that, but that the one other ones, sticks he's out. always hovering right below two wins. Right below two wins, but always a league average hitter or better. Yeah. And I still think when you look at the last two seasons, you see a little more hard contact. So maybe there have been some changes there that could propel the offensive profile a little bit longer. He told me at the at at the All Star game that uh, he had changed his approach a little bit to fit, um, you know, Kansas City, and you can see you know a little bit of change in his pull rate uh, and some of his hard hit rates. So uh, it looked like he was really putting a priority uh, on just putting the ball in play. And and running around and using that big park against itself. Maybe when he goes into Chicago, he goes a little bit more back to his old approach of pulling the ball more and pulling for power. Uh, that would could change his trajectory in terms of aging because right now uh, projection systems just look at his poor power season last year and just uh, just bake in a decline. But if he could sort of get back to 180 ISO, 170 ISO, like he has shown at times. Um, then, you know, I think that would change maybe my opinion on the deal because, uh, if you add power and patience, that ages pretty well, you know, that's something you can, you can step back and just use your power and patience right now. He looks kind of like a speedy contact outfielder, you know, I think he got those extra years though, in part because he's 28, you know, Mm -hmm. if he's 30, 31 years old, we're probably talking about a two to three year deal, but I think being a little younger made it probably easier for teams to convince themselves they could get a bit more out of him over that longer term deal. 15 million a year doesn't ruin the white Sox have money. They're not a tiny market team. So if they're wrong, it's not going to be the reason they're bad. They're going to be bad for other reasons (laughs) at the end of Andrew Benintendi's contract. But, but they had like, they did do weird things. Like there was a rumor that Liam Hendricks was on the, was on the trade block, you know? Yeah, I don't fully understand their direction, but hey, you know, teams do sometimes something. run up against uh, 
you know, they won't get any more money from the owner. So if we want to make a move, we have to trade some money away. I mean, this is a team that really should sign John Segura. Like, I like that should be their second act, right? I think it will be. Yeah, it might. It might just be because that makes everything better. If you put Segura at second, then you know all those guys, Luis Garcia, you know the backup guys at second, they can be backup outfielders and and help there and. Uh, take some pressure off for Oscar Colas, so you know he doesn't have to be the starting guy there. It could be Eloy in right and uh, uh, and just a mix and match of DH. So um, right now the depth chart has Oscar Colas at first in right field and Roni Gonzalez, Romy, 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 Romy. Uh, yeah, so I think those are two places they need to improve. Uh, but the Benintendi signing. I like it a little better once you put it in that perspective, but uh, it just seems it seems like the the Swanson and Benintendi deals to me are like the ones where you know oh we didn't spend as much as the top guys and like well you didn't get a top guy. I think the thing that does make the Benintendi deal look bad is that the terms for Jose Abreu were very very much like favorable for this market. I realized that happened early. Right. Sometimes there's a benefit to making that move early. That's the part of it that would would sting to me if I were a White Sox fan. Be like, wait a minute, we could do that for him, but we couldn't couldn't keep Jose Abreu. That's kind of weird. Um, I think we've seen pretty much the last of Eloy Jimenez as a defensive outfielder. I think he's going to be a DH going. Then forward. maybe that's the that's the calculus for them on Abreu. Is we 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 don't want Vaughn and Eloy Jimenez in this lineup, but we don't want them you know out in the field that much. Yeah, I think that probably was a part of their thinking. Justin Turner lands with the Red Sox, which I think has uh, Red Sox fans um, wondering if Rafael Devers might be on the move soon. Not because Turner's the long term solution, but because you know primarily he plays third base, so. You lose J.D. Martinez to the Dodgers, but you bring in Justin Turner. Does this make the Red Sox any better than they were when they had J.D.? Or is this just kind of a balancing things out sort of move? Ah, oh, man, I don't get it. I One thing that Turner does that J.D. Martinez doesn't do, J.D. Martinez's power is to right center. And we've seen that opposite field homers are dying. And so maybe the Red Sox thought, Turner's batted ball spray looks better for our park and for where the ball is right now, where, you know, it's a better, it's going to age better than Martinez. There's a chance that Martinez days as a, as a plus power hitter are behind him. So uh, maybe that's, that was just the calculus for them. Turner's, we like Turner's power better. He's going to be our DH instead of Martinez. Wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. That all makes sense to me, except the general, Direction of this team is so weird. They now have Christian Arroyo and Rob Refsnyder at the top of their left field and second base situations. They have Trevor Story going back to short with the now he's going to have the very weakest arm in baseball at short in a year where the distance from home to first is shorter. Uh, you're you're waiting for the sort of player development machine to 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 lock in. I mean that's that's got to be the the idea behind the uh, behind this. That seems to be the idea behind teams like this. But you're seeing Brian Bello, Bayo, and Tanner Houck as the 
shining achievements of the player development system. They just let Jeter Downs go. So, you know, th- these trades haven't turned into to great players for them either. It's a, it seems a little rudderless for me in Boston. You could look at the Red Sox and maybe say they are the worst team in the AL East right now. Like the overall long view based on what they have currently on the big league roster in the system. I think you could make a case for that. I mean, especially if they end up flipping Devers. If they don't get a great return and flip Devers, yikes. And the recent trades leave plenty to be desired. Devers is is sort of a one-man pull-you-above-Baltimore, maybe. Uh, and Tristan Cassis, I was a little bit unfair to the player development system. Tristan Cassis is going to give them a chance to to produce an everyday major leaguer this season. But you got Gunnar Henderson and Adley Rutschman. In Baltimore, and Cassis was a first rounder, man. That's 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 like your first rounders are supposed to be big league regulars. Yeah, it's getting closer, man. I don't know if I'm going to give it to you yet, but um, it's getting closer. And in fact, you know, we just had a season where uh, the Orioles did win more games than the Red Sox. So <laughs> I didn't think we were going to get here. I didn't think we'd get here ever, let alone quickly. But here, that's uh, that's what's happening. I I don't think. Just to clarify something from earlier, I don't think adding Turner means Devers is gone. I do think it's more of a, a kind of an insurance policy. We can give Devers more rest as the DH and maybe split the time at third base between those two guys and hopefully have both of them healthy. That's that's probably the the line of thinking that they're they're going through. But we did just see their last shortstop that they were thinking about extending leave and their you know, duplicit. You know, their 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 backup plan. Trevor Story is now their shortstop. I guess, right? <laughs> so Maybe they planned like, that it's all fair along. to ask about Turner, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I mean, but you're talking about a very old third baseman. At least in the case of Story, that was a longer term deal where you knew right. he was going to be on the roster for a while. Turner, I think it's a, it's an option for a second year, so it's not even a guaranteed second year. Uh, Michael Brantley goes back to Houston, not in. Entirely surprising. Seems like a pretty good and logical fit there. How about Joey Gallo going to the Twins? I don't think he's come up a lot in our conversations with the new shift rules. Do you think Joey Gallo becomes a lot more interesting from a fantasy perspective in uh, the 2023 environment? If you could take Joey Gallo and Luis Arias and just smush them together, it'd be, be a fun player. Yeah, that'd be, that'd be a Mike Trout. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's really hard from a fantasy perspective to to stomach the batting average he's likely to put up. Uh, in an OBP league, yeah. In real life, yeah, I see it. You know, it's a little bit like the Cody Ballinger thing, where you're just like, he's likely to be worth this money, you know, and it's not a long term commitment. And uh, maybe if he turns it around and is really good, then we're in this in the best seat to sign him to extension, you know? Um, but he's projected for 188 batting average. And I just, I can't have that on my team. Joey Gallo has basically the same offensive projection as Miguel Sano. Sano has a higher average and a lower OBP. You just lived this with a guy that could really <laughs> only be first base DH. Why is this going to be different? 
What are you oh, doing? And you, you can you at least need play a the outfield, outfielder. I guess. <laughs> but you didn't even need that. You didn't need a corner outfielder. Did, did you look at the Twins and say they needed to go get someone? I mean, Larnack, Kirilov, I know they're coming off injuries. So well, Sano's a maybe. free agent, so. Yeah, Sano's gone. So I know I, I get him. first. <laughs> right. I just, like, why, why after going through years of Miguel Sano, do you go out and hand $11 million to Joey Gallo? Because uh, you've just felt like you always needed to have that in your lineup. <laughs> oh, they're, they're, man. they're, they, uh, to be fair, they were early in on barrel rate and have espoused, you know, higher launch angles than most teams over the course of StatCast. So, like, they really do like barrels. And, uh, this is, this is a barrel rate play. I know, but they, they've lived this already. <laughs> the difference, of course, Joey Gallo has a lot more defensive value. That's the difference. So now you've got a guy that has the flaws of Miguel Sano, but does have some other strengths that make him a little bit better fit on a big league roster. I'll give them that. But they, don't have a, they don't have an obvious DH. Uh, there is the, the, the question that has been sort of floated around Minnesota, which is do they trade Max Kepler for a starting pitcher? If that is on the trade uh, on the table anywhere, because and I could see it because they have Trevor Larnock and Alex Kirloff uh, currently working backup roles, uh, and I think you know if you if you made Kirloff more of a starter, um, that would be okay. I think he's a good pitter. Uh, Kepler will benefit some from the new uh, shift rules. He is a lefty pull hitter but he doesn't hit the ball extremely hard and some of his uh, low batting averages come from the fact that he really lifts the ball aggressively he has a very high launch angle um, so I don't think he's necessarily uh, gonna you know hit 300 next year I think he's and who's more trading a, for that who wants that profile wants like a league average corner outfielder nobody we already saw, and is it one year? Is it one year of a deal? There's a club option for one more year in 2024. He's, he's could cheap. be two years. So, but he's like, like he'll get you slightly more than Hunter Renfro got you on the, on the, on the, uh, on the free market, right? Or maybe slightly I, less. I mean, he's I, may not probably be less. Yeah. So that means if you're trading Max Kepler, it's for a reliever most likely, and then maybe you make Duran a starter. I don't know. Yeah, I think okay. Max Kepler is going to stay. And I guess they're going to go with Kyle Farmer to begin the season while they're waiting for Royce Lewis. Sure. Yeah, that's uh I mean, I like Royce Lewis a lot, so if that if the plan is basically Royce Lewis once he's healthy, I can get on board with that. I did like the Christian Vasquez addition. I thought actually thought a team that was more desperate for catching would get him, but the Twins wanted someone to pair with Ryan Jeffers. A whole bunch of catchers moved, by the way. Christian Vasquez to the Twins. Omar Narvaez to the Mets, Mike Zanino to the Guardians, then Austin Hedges to the Pirates. So four catchers, even beyond the catchers that were involved uh, in that trade earlier. Other moves, by the way, Kevin Kiermeyer to the Blue Jays. I think he said he's finally healthy after dealing with the the hip for a yeah. couple of years. So that's he's finally healthy until he's not. And then Adam Frazier to the Orioles, the aforementioned Adam Frazier. Um, anything in that group move the needle for you? I was waiting for Adam Frazier to get, you know, back to, you know, getting, get all those plate appearances and like, uh, 
you know, put together 10 homers with the 10 stolen bases in the same year. I, I think he he is a deceptively valuable monoleague guy, you know, uh, a guy who will play and I think will put up a decent batting average and will get close to 10 homers and 10 steals. Really not that interesting in most leagues, but in ale only, that is, uh, especially if you can get somebody like that for five bucks, it's uh, insanely valuable. If you translate the 2020 shortened season into a full season's worth of playing time, you're looking at 600 plate appearances, four straight seasons for Adam Frazier. So I think that mono league uh, placement is is accurate. I mean, I think he's just a solid accumulator for those leagues and uh, might, as the Orioles get better, go from everyday guy to part-time guy, but it's fine. If he's your first bench player, that's a good first bench player. Yeah, I think he's comfortably the starter because they don't really have a great situation at third. Now, Jorge Mateo is currently the big loser on the Fangraphs depth charts because they're going to put Gunnar Henderson in at short and Ramon Urias at third, um, where they also have Jordan Westberg coming up uh, through the system. Mateo is exactly that type that I think plays less and less as the team gets better. Um, but I do think next year is going to be an interesting time because people are going to see that Mateo put up value last year. I have in the auction calculator, Mateo is the three, six, nine, twelve, 16th best shortstop last year. Put up $9 of value in a 12 team league. So, uh, you know, people are going to see that, going to see the steals, maybe, uh, eyes get large with the new steals rules and, and, and say he's, you know, even if he hits 220, 230, he's going to steal 55 bags. He's going to be huge for me. This is, it's kind of like that same thing with Asturi Ruiz, which is like, okay, I get that, but he's not that, like he did all that. And last year was 18% worse than league average of the bat. So where is he playing? Uh, and if it's not short over Gunnar Henderson, which I don't think it is, unless Gunnar Henderson goes to third, then, uh, you know, he's going to be the big loser. For example, uh, you know, Jorge Mateo versus Ramon Urias. That might be the way it goes. Well, Ramon Urias has been league, uh, above league average his whole career with the bat. So if you were choosing between two guys at third and one guy had been above league average his whole career and the other guy had a you know, WRC plus was worth 20% worse than the average. Maybe all of a sudden Mateo's a backup. Yeah. That 267 OBP last season from Mateo is the biggest hurdle he has to play. I mean, I think the fact that he was a good defender at short certainly helps his cases, helps his case, but it, it's getting more crowded in Baltimore. And I'm very curious to see how they keep his speed in the lineup. I pick 200. Are you in on Jorge Mateo, by the way, for this year? In a mixed league, like a 15 team mixed league? It's not my type of player. <laughs> you're sort of in just like 45 minutes ago, but now you're you're back out on Jorge I was just trying to sell you. I was just trying to sell you a used car. I didn't believe you. <laughs> I, w- I walked walked right off that lot. Uh, Eric Hosmer DFA'd Frank Schwindel headed to Japan too, if you're tracking some of the very, very bottom of the list first base options for early drafts. Hosmer's going to latch on somewhere at the league minimum, right? I mean, he's not going to, he's not done. Yeah. Padres are paying for the bill, so someone else will bring him in. 
take a look at least. Nationals, A's. Oh my God, A's. Don't do it. Um, Marlins, Garrett Cooper. Angels, Jared Walsh. Cubs. No, they're gonna they're gonna give it to Mervis. I think. Oh, that'd be horrible for the for the Mervis crowd. Though. <laughs> <It'd be> so bad. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Rockies, mix them in there. Yeah, I don't think I don't think I see a I don't think I really see a starting job waiting for him anywhere. Oh, but if he's a bench player, maybe he's okay as a bench player. We'll see. Not see that where many he lands. First base bench guys. Yeah. No, no. And again, universal DH helps if some team believes he can hit enough, but I think that's very questionable uh, at this point in time. I think that's gonna do it. For Rates and Barrels for this year, which is uh, amazing. Year four in the books. Uh, No episode next week. So we hope everybody out there has a safe and happy holiday season. You got any like beer of the year picks or any other um, pearls of wisdom to throw out there on our way out the door, you know? No, just that I uh, really, really appreciate uh, our listeners. And uh, it's been a pleasure working with you. Um, And uh, I think we've. Uh, taken rates and barrels uh, and and develop something really fun and and cool here. And I really appreciate the community uh, surrounding it and uh, hope everyone has a a happy new year. Yeah. Right back at you. Love working with you on this show and excited for what 2023 might bring. Appreciate all the listeners out there. Tons of emails. Some of them, unfortunately not responded to inbox zero before the new year is a possibility. I've got a little bit of time this week. I'm going to try and beat the clock on Friday and get a few responses out there. Rates and barrels at theathletic.com. If you'd like to make that a more difficult task for me, emails always welcome. On Twitter, Eno's at Eno Saris. I am at Derek Van Riper. That's going to do it for this episode of Rates and Barrels. We are back with you in two weeks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>